Hey folks, welcome to the show. My name is Michael Lin, developer advocate at MongoDB and host of this, the MongoDB podcast. Today on the show, we're talking about streaming data and streaming applications with Apache Kafka. Now, if you're not familiar, we're going to explain all about Kafka and we're going to talk to a couple of experts to help us understand how and why we might want to implement Kafka as part of our application stack. Now, Kafka is traditionally used for building real-time streaming data pipelines and real-time streaming applications. A data pipeline simply reliably processes and moves data from one system to another. And a streaming application similarly is an application that consumes potentially large volumes of data. A great example for why you might want to use Kafka would be perhaps capturing all of the user activity that happens on your website. As users visit your website, they're interacting with links on the page and scrolling up and down. This is potentially large volumes of data. You may want to store this to understand how users are interacting with your website in real time. Now, Kafka will aid in this process by ingesting and storing all of this activity data while serving up reads for applications on the other side. Kafka began its life in 2010 at LinkedIn and made its way to the public open source space through a relationship with Apache, the Apache Foundation. And that was in 2011. Since then, the use of Kafka has grown massively and it's estimated that approximately 30% of all Fortune 500 companies are already using Kafka in one way or another. Today on the show, Chris Jenkins, developer advocate from Confluent, and Rob Walters, product manager at MongoDB. We're going to talk all about streaming data, streaming applications, Kafka, and how you can leverage this technology to your benefit and use it in your applications. Stay tuned. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, today, we have Chris Jenkins of Confluent. Welcome, Chris. It's great to have you on the show. Do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, nice to be on the show. My name is Chris Jenkins. I'm a developer advocate. Uh, I've been a developer ag- advocate for a year, which means I'm still kind of figuring out what that means. But I spend my days building things with Kafka, talking about Kafka, talking to people who are using it, and just figuring out what this world is. And we also have Rob Walters from MongoDB. And Rob, your your title has changed. I think you're actually in, are you in product management? Yes. Yep. I'm Rob Walters. Uh, I'm a product manager responsible for our Kafka and Spark connectors. And so my mission really is to make it easy for our users to leverage MongoDB within their Apache Kafka environment. So I look at the connector from a features and functionality perspectives. I take feedback. I also build a lot of tutorials, blog posts, and webinars and so forth, really to you know, so, sort of add value and make it easier for developers to fuse these two technologies together. Well, welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm wondering if someone might want to take a stab at explaining what Kafka is for the beginner. Chris, maybe you want to take a swing? Yeah, I should probably. That sounds like a question I should be able to field. So Kafka is an event system, right? It's a system for recording, processing, and sending on events. So if you're used to event-driven architectures, that's probably going to be a fairly obvious idea. It's the persistence layer of an event-driven architecture. If you're not, probably the easiest way to think about it is to start by thinking about a queue and get more sophisticated in the thinking from there. So something happens, 
you want to record it, save it to disk, and process it later somewhere else. Now multiply that by a million things happening a second. They're streaming in like a fire hose, like a floodgate. First job is to persist them. Second job is to process them. Third job is to send them to their destination. And the third one's particularly interesting because you might want to send it to multiple destinations, right? So to give you a concrete example, let's say you've got, let's pick something fun. You've got telemetry data coming in from a massive online game, right? People are playing the game. You've got 100,000 users playing your game, recording scores and login events and login out events and all kinds of different data just streaming in like a fire hose from all these people. And you want to save it. You know that your perhaps your billing team needs a subset of that data to be processed quickly. You know that the um, analytics team wants to process the same set of data in a different way. And you just get dealing with the fire hose of events coming from the real world in the real time in different interesting ways for different departments. That is exactly where Kafka shines. Now, you know, in my naivete, I, I, I'm not really super familiar with Kafka. I've, uh, I've used it in the past very briefly for a couple of different projects. But when I first approached streaming and queuing, my initial thought was around this, this appears to be filling a gap in the database technology space. Why can't databases simply handle the volume of data that we're trying to deal with by implementing streams? Well, uh, there are two things to that. One is, one is, do you think about how databases deal with the underlying storage of events at, at high scale, right? One of the first things a traditional database will do before it's done any work with the data that's coming in is it will write it to a transaction log as partly as its replication me mechanism, partly as its um, recovery mechanism, right? The first thing a database wants to do is store what's actually happened to its replication log and then deal with it. And that's terrifically efficient because replication logs, essentially being an append-only file, are incredibly cheap to write to. So at the heart of every database, especially if it's replicated, you've probably got an append-only log serving as the master record of what actually happened before it was processed. So take that piece out, make it the center of your database, make it the center of your data solution, let's say, and you've got Kafka. And then the question is, what do you build on top of that high throughput, high reliability, cheap to write to, cheap to replicate log? And, and I think one of the other things that's interesting about Kafka is the fact that it, it doesn't really know what kind of data is in it. It's just binary data. So you can really fast, you can take data and move it really fast amongst, uh, you know, from a partition perspective, the fact that, that it doesn't have to know that it's JSON or it's a text or string or something like that. And so that's another, I think, uh, valuable architecture that, that Kafka has, has built in. And you can build you can build more intelligence on the data on top of that, but fundamentally, the very the base is a binary key value store that's exceptional at a never ending stream of events. Interesting. So as I'm as the events occur, I'm sending them to the queue, and they're available for last in, first out, or, or uh, first in, first out, or. Uh, first in, first out. Yep. Okay. You, you would process them in the order they arrive in, subject to some sharding. Is there any 
index capability. And I guess the, the question I have is, what are the similarities and differences between a database and a stream in Kafka? That's a good question. I think the starting point is you. it starts to look more like a traditional database when you start thinking about state. Right, so I have a stream of um, customer orders that come in, let's say, and I record every order that comes in, and then eventually I say, "Hey, I'd like to know how much people have bought by country." So I'd like a process that looks at every new order coming in, looks at the country it's come from, and adds that to a, a group by country total. Right, and it's when you start doing things that roll up a stateful running total, running state, running balance, perhaps, that's when Kafka starts to look more like a traditional database. Okay, that makes sense. And from a technology perspective, Kafka is open source. What does the architecture look like? Um, we've actually got a really great course on that by one of the guys that um, started in the original code base. Under the hood, think of an append-only file as your logical starting point. And then two slightly more sophisticated things are going on on top of that. The first is um, sharding. So you might partition by, you, you could partition by key. So let's say all your keys are a UUID for your users. You might partition into 16 partitions by the first character of their UUID. And that would be an obvious benefit for scaling, right? You've horizontally sharded by the first character of a hex string. Now you've got potentially 16 times as much capacity hmm. and you've lost ordering guarantees over the whole thing, but you've regained some ordering, but you've kept ordering guarantees by user key, which is usually what matters. Tell, tell me, explain to me what ordering guarantees are. Um, so all this fire hose flood of data is coming in. You need to think a bit about the order in which the the meaningful order of events, right? So if you recorded all those events just as they come over the network and stuck them on an append-only log, then you would have a total global ordering, but you would be limited to one log. You might want to partition that out, right? And say, I, I need a bit more capacity. I'm going to partition that out by not all my users. That's too large. Let's partition by those by the first hex character. So that gives me 16 partitions. And so you will lose total global ordering, but you'll still have ordering within users, right? Each user will have all their events coming in in order, which is probably fine. In most use cases, you're more interested in, say, the order by user than the global total order. So you can partition that way. And you've got some options around how you partition to keep the ordering that matters whilst not tying your hands having scalability. So that sounds a lot like the way that MongoDB scales in terms of partitioning and sharding. So that's similar in terms of the architecture. I'm curious about when I add an item to the queue, what does that look like from a metadata perspective? There's going to be the data associated with whatever event is, but can I add additional elements of data in a key value pair? Um, certainly, yeah. Firstly, the value can be any structured data you like, obviously. At the base level, it's just binary. So you can have more structure in there. But then there are header fields for, um, you can add interesting things like this value is actually a password or one of the subfields within it is a password. So we need to track that for security purposes, for instance. And you might put that in the metadata field. And then you've got partition level metadata, which is like how replicated do we want this thing to be? Are we replicating every event that's recorded to three machines for resiliency, for instance? Uh, okay. 
So what are the applications that, I mean, obviously if something is a high volume of throughput, but let's talk about the use cases where people will want to start considering a queuing system like Kafka. Um, I, I'm going to pick you up on there. Queuing system isn't entirely fair. It's a great use case. Mm-hmm. But what it is, is an event system. So uh, if I can just dwell on the distinction for a second, I think traditionally you might use um, a queuing system for stuff where you want to capture it, wait till it's ready to process, process it and throw it away. Okay. Often events in a queue are transient. They are used up when they're consumed. Whereas in Kafka, you would probably keep the events around for much longer long after they've been processed, perhaps indefinitely, because for two reasons. One is you might want to process them again in a different way. And the second reason is um, that events are usually quite cheap to store and expensive to acquire. You know, your user interactions, they only happen once. Why throw that data away now that the disk is so cheap? So you often capture the events in perpetuity, perhaps, for the future use case you haven't thought of. And another use case, like, from a MongoDB perspective, we we tend to a lot focus a lot on single view, you know, applications or mainframe offloading as sort of key use cases where MongoDB shines. And Kafka is seen used in these architectures sometimes because it's a it's a great way to sort of aggregate data from heterogeneous data sources and sort of if it flows through Kafka, you know, at really high rates, then you can do transforms and then put that into into MongoDB for you know as a single view in that case. Yeah, that's a very common use case that you would use Kafka as a way of funneling different data sources into a set, into a unified stream of events and then funneling it out perhaps into Mongo. And maybe maybe you funneling it into Mongo for operational purposes and an analytics database for the marketing team, for instance. And then you've got Kafka as the as the data backbone of that architecture. So speaking of MongoDB, Rob, maybe talk a little bit about how Kafka and MongoDB work together. Sure. So uh, there are there are a couple different services as part of Kafka, and Kafka Connect is one service, and that service's job really is to connect these heterogeneous data sources and and have them interact with with Kafka. So rather than having you know an application written that connects to a Kafka topic directly and then worrying about uh, failover errors and that sort of thing, Kafka Connect's job really is to handle all that. So as a connector, uh, we provide a connector that talks directly with the Kafka Connect API. And so we will set up MongoDB or the user can set up MongoDB either as a source. So it's taking data, reading data in from MongoDB and and writing it into a Kafka topic or as a sync, which takes data from a Kafka topic and writes it into MongoDB. When it's used as a source, what we're effectively doing you know, under the covers is we're creating a chain stream on that database or collection, whatever the user specifies. So as data is you know, inserted, updated, deleted from that collection, those events are being created as chain stream events, which are funneling through to a Kafka topic. So that's a, a common use case there. And then, of course, as a sync, you can you can subscribe to uh, a topic and write that out to to a collection. So Kafka Connect is a way. There's there's a whole uh, there's many and you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of connectors that are available uh, online to you know download and use. Great. And you mentioned a couple of key terms there. I think from the MongoDB side as well as from the Kafka side, you're using the term topic in Kafka. Chris, tell folks what a topic is. Right. So a topic is, it's that logical stream of events. It's all the key value 
pairs for the thing in question. So user orders might be a topic. But then uh, if you want to get the whole architecture picture in your head, beneath that, you might split the topic out actually out into 16 physical files. Above it, you might add some type information. So rather than just being binary key values, you might say the key is a string and the value is a JSON blob with this format. And we would use the term stream for that. The thing above the raw binary topic that has types is a string. Okay. So we've got streams, topics, and then on the mug. And that makes me want, I wish I had uh, like a diagram I could give you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Hopefully you can visualize that. <laughs> Rob, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. One thing I just wanted to kind of point out now that we're talking about strings and some data types and things. I mean, as you know, MongoDB, we work in JSON documents. And before we were talking about Kafka with respect to how it stores data or how it looks at data, which is just binary. And so this bridging of a JSON document versus binary, you know, how how is that done? And that's actually defined through what are called converters. And so, you know, by default, I think string converter, if you don't specify one, where basically it just takes whatever JSON document have, converts into a string, and then pushes that on the Kafka topic. But you can do uh, other string converters like JSON or Avro or Protobuf and, and so forth. And so that's kind of how the documents move from and, and how the sync knows that the source, you know, really came from is a JSON document. So that's just kind of like a side note there as we're talking about strings and so forth. You might want to do something like, um, I don't know, you've got, you want to take some user data out of Mongo and give it to the marketing department, but you don't want to give them their password or their name or their age. You just want to give them some change data, right? So you might use the connector there to pull out a subset of things and just stick those into Mongo, uh, into Kafka. And Rob, before we move on, you mentioned chain streams. That's a, a critical component in the MongoDB architecture. Do you want to explain that for folks that might not be aware? Yep. So change streams is MongoDB's implementation of uh, like a change data capture type of functionality. So it opens a, uh, you know, a cursor on whatever the user specifies uh, through the pipeline. So that could be all database changes or a certain a specific collection or a filtered collection. So if you only want events where the, you know, the orders, the inventory was greater than 100, for example, you want to trigger that uh, that certain event that will produce uh, a change stream event. And inside that event, you'll have uh, the documents that uh, that was changed. You'll have a whole bunch of other metadata, such as the time it was changed, the operation, whether it was an insert, a delete, or an update, and so forth. And so that's that's a feature that came out, I believe, in MongoDB 3.4 that has been iterated on. And we have some exciting stuff coming out in 6.0 that will be announced at MongoDB World around ChainStream. So uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah, that's coming up right around the corner. Speaking of MongoDB World, it's coming June 7th through the 9th to New York City. It's in the Javits Center. And if you're interested in joining us, tickets are on sale now. You can use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get 25% off of your tickets. And if you use that code, you can get some additional podcast swag as you arrive at the conference. So once again, June 7th through the 9th at the Javits Center, uh, use the code podcast at mongodb.com slash world. Rob, did you have something else? Yes. Yeah. I just had a question for Chris. So uh, like in a Kafka architecture, so one of the things that Kafka has for those that really start digging down, you know, deploying it and so forth, is Zookeeper. And I think one of the most mm. exciting things that's happening is the removal of Zookeeper. I was just wondering if Chris could kind of uh, explain to our listeners a little bit about that and and what the changes being made with. Yeah, absolutely. As long as we understand, we're all we're all uh, developer friends here. You're not going to ask me to commit to a timeline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so um, quick bit of history. So Kafka comes out around, I think, about 2011 or 2012, something like that. And back then, the right choice for distributed consensus, if you didn't want to build it from scratch, was Zookeeper. It's what everyone used at the time. It's a good product. Um, so that's why historically, for the things like leader election, Kafka has uh, Zookeeper helping to manage failover and um, partition leaders and that kind of thing. But that is an extra moving piece. It's an extra thing to deploy and maintain and care for. It would be nice if you didn't need that in the system. So a lot of work has been going into Kafka recently to get rid of Zookeeper and have its own fault-tolerant leader election mechanism built into Kafka. Uh, it uses the Raft protocol. If you if you fancy a bit of computer science, you can go and look up the Raft paper. And it's called KRAFT, our implementation, because it's Kafka Raft. Great name. And a lot of work's been going on for that. There was a really good talk about it, which is coming up online on YouTube soon at Kafka Summit London 22, if you want to look about it. But I'll give you the pricey, which is it's pretty much ready. It's gone into beta. You can use it now. We say don't use it in production. And the reason for that mostly is there are some management tools around it that are still being built. So you could use it, but you'll probably not have the best time until the whole maintenance picture has been built out. Anytime soon, you'll find that Kafka uses KRAFT natively. There's no Zookeeper, and it uses Kafka Topics to manage um, the metadata for leader election, which as a final sort of aside, I found quite satisfying when I realized that when they needed a new system for managing the events of who's the leader, of course they used Kafka. And it's dog fooding. I always find it satisfying when a tool uses itself. It's kind of um, a mark of confidence. Yeah, and it's very exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to be able to de deploy without Zookeeper. It just cleans up my Docker Compose. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned how MongoDB and Kafka work together. Both of these software products are available. They're open. You can download them and install them on a server and run them on your own. But MongoDB has launched a pretty successful service in the cloud. It's called MongoDB Atlas. I'm curious, Chris, Confluent, talk to us about what Confluent, the company, does and how does it relate to the Kafka project from Apache? Well, similarly, we've... Um, so Confluent was long ago the company spin-off to the open source project. Um, a few of the co-founders of the Apache Kafka product said there's going to be need for support, paid maintenance, all those things you'd expect from an open source project that's being seriously used in enterprise. So that's how Kafka Confluent were founded, and as the internet and internet businesses have matured, they've moved to a cloud-based version of Kafka called Confluent Cloud. Probably the similar aims to Atlas. It's a great tool, but it's even better when someone else manages it for you, and uh, you've got a team of absolute native experts dealing with the infrastructure. That's what Confluent Cloud does. I'm tempted to give people the podcast code they can sign up with because turnabout's fair play, but I'll, I'll avoid it. Oh, please do. Okay. <laughs> if you go to confluent.cloud and sign up with the code podcast100, because we have our own podcast, uh, you can get $100 of free credit. And it's, it's managed Kafka in the cloud. Um, we've got plenty of the uh, original and ongoing committers to Kafka working on it. We regularly give back code to the open source project and just work on it, pay for people to work on it full time. 
Occasionally, we do things like we realize one of our customers is going to need a new feature. We build that feature. And then once it's ready and matured, we start pushing it back to the open source project. So we are independent, definitely connected, definitely trying to make the open source project thrive and support the people that need commercial support. Yeah, and one, one thing I just wanted to add to Confluent Cloud is that uh, we as MongoDB have a great partnership with Confluent, and we've been working with their development team on the connectors in the Confluent Cloud. So the MongoDB Atlas Source and Sync is our connector that is hosted in the Confluent Cloud. So it makes it really easy to to sort of stand up that all that Kafka Connect stuff and Kafka topics. All you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Zookeeper and hopefully not Zookeeper anymore. But it just with a click of a button, you have you know direct connection to an Atlas cluster. You can read data from it and then put it in the Confluent Cloud and you know go from there. So that's something that came out with uh, about a year ago or so. We were one of the first uh, connectors in the Confluent Cloud. And so we've just been iterating on that. And I think they're getting to version 1.7, which is our latest uh, release of the connector. So, Rob, where does that configuration take place uh, to configure the, the connector? Is that on from the Kafka Cloud side? The Confluent Cloud, yep. Yeah, you basically have, I think they have a command line, is a C cloud or something that you can, you know, sort of dynamically or programmatically, you know, create um, these connections for. But yeah, so basically it's almost uh, every option is in there. Obviously with a Confluent Cloud, you can't upload your own jar file. So some of the things, for those that are really familiar with connectors, like if you wanted to create your own post-processor or write strategy in MongoDB, you would write Java code, compile it into a jar file, and then upload that. That is is not possible in the Confluent Cloud. So some of these things that some of the more advanced cases, you know, you might have to just kind of do some some research on. But, you know, for the 80 percent case, for sure, you can use the Confluent Cloud for. So we talked about some of the use cases that are that are popular where people start to think about Kafka and MongoDB together. Rob, what else are we missing? What other use cases are, are very popular? Yeah, we see a lot of customers using the combination of Kafka and MongoDB for um, time series kind of use cases like IoT. And uh, most recently, we added some features in our MongoDB Kafka connector to make it really easy, uh, literally like checking a box or you know defining a configuration parameter to send that data directly to a time series collection in MongoDB. So time series collections are new collection type that we introduced in MongoDB 5.0 that really optimize the storage of IoT data or time series data for that matter in MongoDB. And to kind of give you an, an example, when, when we originally created MongoDB, it was a very denormalized uh, way of, of dealing with data. So, you know, like one document doesn't really represent one data point. One document might represent, you know, like a customer, for example, with, you know, sub documents and arrays and so forth. And what we found in the IoT use case is that a lot of customers would create uh, one document per data point because they were used to the relational world. So like, here's a temperature sensor. I'm going to create a new document. This is the timestamp. You know, my temperature is whatever, 20 degrees centigrade or something. But that from a MongoDB standpoint is not the best way to store data because you have an index entry on every single document. And so when you have very large IoT data, obviously that that would arbitrarily increase your index size. So we created time series collections to sort of really optimally store that data in a columnar format, sort of under the covers. So now you can still store one document per data point, but under the covers, we're storing that optimally and we're getting really in, incredible uh, savings from storage and performance and so forth. And so all that happens for you. All you have to do is just say, yep, store it to a time series collection, and then the connector takes care of that for you. So long-winded answer to your short question. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. So time series and, and IoT specific use cases popular. Um, Chris, anything we're missing in that in that space? Any additional use cases that you wanted to mention? Um, I think one thing that's really nice that you can do on top of Kafka is um, uh, stream processing. It's worth spending some time with. So uh, if we take my favorite example of the month, um, like games, just because they're high volume and high different use cases, right? So say you've got all that event data coming in from people's games that, we, that I mentioned earlier, and you would like to put some statistics in your um, Mongo database, right? So that's the central thing that we presented to the user. Kafka's dealing with the fire hose of game data. And what you really like to do is just roll up that fire hose and just say, oh, the user played five games in the past hour. And then once that's rolled up, spit that data out into Mongo. That would be a perfect use case where you've got Kafka, a bit of stream processing in Kafka to summarize or massage the data, and then going across a connector into Mongo. And um, oh, it's worth adding into that. You've got a few options for how to do that stream processing. So you could write it as a Java process, or we've got uh, KSQL, which is a SQL-like interface for that kind of data processing. So there, um, those are pretty good options for how to define the transformations that you need to shape. That's interesting. So the KSQL, is that processing against the actual stream of data? Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it is if you're used to SQL in a relational database, you normally issue a query and it rolls over what data is currently in the database gives you an answer and stops. Whereas in a stream processing database, you might run an insert select statement that will insert all the existing rows that it's selected, but then it keeps living in the background looking for new rows, new events coming into the database and processes those later. So it almost becomes like your SQL statement becomes a living transformation of new events. Almost like a trigger. Yeah, kind of. You can see it like a trigger, except you can just define it in uh, straight SQL. There's, there's less programming and more manipulation, I would say. Yeah, and I think in, in, with regard to programming, that brings up another point. So, you know, we've had these single message transforms or SMTs uh, for a while in Kafka, but there's only like a limited amount of them. And if you want to do anything special, you write your own Java code into a jar file and upload it and all that. But I think KSQL kind of makes transformations like, like a lot easier in that case. So you don't have to kind of go through that. Plus, SMTs from a performance perspective are not, uh, you know, not fantastic. So I think the adoption of KSQL, so you'll, you'll see, is probably increased. Uh, in these cases. Yeah, and any SQL expert will tell you it's amazing what you can get done with an SQL query. <laughs> Indeed. Well, this has been a great discussion. I want to make sure we uh, we get folks that are interested after hearing this information, get them some information about where they can go. Chris, where do folks go to get more information about Confluent Cloud, about Kafka? The number one place is a thing we've been working on a lot in our department, which is developer.confluence.io, which is our site to teach you everything we can about Kafka. So it's got everything from getting started guides, if you're brand new to the idea. It's got videos on how it's built on the internals, if you want to dive really deep. It's got architectural recipes. So you can learn how to start thinking in event streaming models, which is often I find the most interesting thing, like the tools and techniques we grasp pretty quickly. But thinking in a different kind of architecture is an incredibly useful brain exercise. Um, and it's great to have some content that handholds you through that new way of thinking. So I'm particularly proud of those bits. 
Um, and also we have a podcast for which I am the host. Uh, if you search for the Confluent podcast on your podcast app of choice, I will uh, happily fill you in with more details about how it's being used in the real world. And with a bit of luck, we'll have someone from Mongo on our show soon. Fantastic. I think we can work on that. Rob? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and one thing I wanted to kind of mention, uh, since that we're talking about, you know, sort of next steps and, and call to actions and so forth is uh, I will be at MongoDB World under the Builders Fest giving a Kafka demonstration as well as tutorial. So if you bring your laptop or whatever, you can uh, you know spin up a Docker image that we'll have there and you can actually go through and use our connector. But if you can't make it, these tutorials are going to be online by world on our MongoDB Kafka uh, documentation. So today there's two tutorials there, um, but we're actually adding a whole bunch more, more around the introductory. So creating a source, creating a sync, you know, some of the more basic operations just to kind of get you up to speed on, on using these two t technologies together. And is there a, a, a documentation source you want to send folks to, to, to read more about the connectors? Yep. You can, you can start uh, by just using MongoDB Kafka documentation. If you just put a Google search for that or Bing or whatever your search engine is, uh, that will bring you to our MongoDB documentation section. And there'll be a tutorials on the left-hand side that you can go through and, and start working away. Uh, and like I said, right around MongoDB world, we're going to be updating that. We're going to be adding a whole bunch of more uh, introductory ones. So if you're hearing this podcast after June, you'll see them in there. Awesome. Chris, Rob, thank you both so much for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to share, Chris, before we wrap up? Oh, God. Um, I work with a lot of Californians, so sharing too much can be dangerous. I, I'm just <laughs> going to repeat, uh, developer.confluent.io will tell you a lot of what you need to know about Kafka. Thank you, Chris. Rob, anything else? Uh, nope. Just check out the uh, tutorial documentation. If you're coming to MongoDB World, you know, definitely meet us on Builders Fest Day. And then, you know, other than that, we'll look forward to seeing everybody there. Thanks once Thanks again. Thanks once again to Chris Jenkins. Confluent. Make sure you check out Chris's podcast. It's called the Streaming Audio Podcast from Confluent. It talks all about Kafka. To learn more, you can continue your journey of discovery around streaming data with the Confluent Podcast. And as Rob mentioned, you can check out more information about MongoDB's Kafka Connector by visiting the MongoDB Kafka documentation. There's links in the show notes to all of these resources. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I'd love to get a review from you. If you could visit Apple Podcasts, give us a, a five-star review. Let us know what you thought. Leave a comment. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.